Welcome to the Brentwood School Podcast, the place where we talk to staff, parents and pupils to find out more about life within the school. This is the place to keep up to date and in touch with our community. So let's get into this episode right now of the Brentwood School Podcast. In this episode, we're delighted to be joined by Sharath Jeevan, OBE. He's one of the world's leading experts on intrinsic motivation. He is executive chairman of the Influential Intrinsic Labs, which supports organisation and leaders around the world in solving deep motivational challenges. We'll find out more about Sharath's life, his motivation and what part Brentwood School played in his development. How the pandemic affected him and what the future holds for Sharath and his work. Let's meet him now. Hello. Hi, Tracy. Such a pleasure to be with you today. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. So tell me about your relationship with Brentwood School and how did that start? Yeah, Tracy, it was a very special um, time in my life and a very eventful one, actually, not always uh, quite a challenging one. I was I was born in India, in the south of India, came to the UK when I was about four years old. And my parents, who are fairly adventurous doctors, decided to go and work for the National Health Service in Saudi Arabia. And I spent really formative years there between the ages of seven and 14. Quite happy there. And uh, I was you know, going to finish secondary school or high school, as they call it there, all, all the way through. And then you know, life happened in terms of the, the Gulf War and Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait. And so everything changed. It was a really strange period in my life as well. And no one was quite sure what the effect was going to be. And I think my parents have always been, um, uh, been very lucky in the sense they've always prioritized education. And so they decided to take a, a big risk and, and head back to the UK. Neither of them had a job when they did that. Um, they left very, you know, very comfortable positions and, and highly respected positions in, in the country. And I remember it was, it was around Christmas time, around December, uh, coming back to the UK. I remember having to borrow a coat from someone or coming back in because you couldn't get uh, coats at that temperature in, um, you know, often a 30, 40 degree um, Saudi Arabia. Stay with some family, friends and so on. And basically started talking to schools at the time. And I remember going to meet uh, Mr. Mr. Jackson, Bob Jackson, um, who's now sadly, of course, passed away, but he was the head of the middle school at the time. And he said to my parents, I remember I was in the in the meeting, and he said, look, you know, we can't say no to letting you all in, given the circumstances. And that was just a wonderful, I think, um, welcome to the school, because it was a very traumatic time in my life, honestly. And I think the fact that the school was so welcoming and open, they sort of buddied me up with various friends. I mean, it's very close friends, I some of who I'm still in touch with now. That role was a very pivotal one. I spent two years there for my, between the ages of 14 and 16, but it had a big effect on me. That's a very difficult time of life, isn't it, as well, to make that kind of transition? Yeah, I think so. And I think what was interesting was, you know, a lot of my boundaries, my, all my sort of compasses had to be reset. So my, the school, I was in a very good school in Saudi Arabia, but you know, the British system, especially Brentwood, you know, it was probably a higher standard in many ways. I had to adjust had to adjust in meeting new friends. But I think that adaptability was something I still uh, take back with me uh, 30 or so years later. I'm much more adaptable now, much more able to uh, move through my career to different industries, sectors, work with very, very different kinds of people. I think that experience, although it was, it was painful at the time, honestly, it, it was a really important formative ground for me, I think, to develop as a person. And you still have a relationship now with Brent? Yeah, I'm very proud of your governor. I, I actually um, reconnected with Michael Bond uh, about a year, year and a half, a couple of years ago uh, during the pandemic. I just said, you know, I'd love to see what's happening with the school. I loved his podcast, uh, the first one of this series, and I'm an avid listener. But you know, I was just really struck and impressed by how much um, had happened since I was there and how strong the leadership was, um, both at the executive level and at the board level. And just seeing the strides the school is making I think what really also persuaded me was that to join and become a governor was that 
there was a real sense, I think Michael talked about, you know, how the school remained very, very down to earth. That was certainly a, a, a value when I was there. That sense, it, it didn't take itself too seriously. It was still very, very grounded. But also, I think, really committed to helping young people of very diverse backgrounds access the school. There's always that worry now with any independent school that we're, are we only catering for a very, very small elite? I think the school is really very, very sincere about the efforts to try to build more bursaries and more scholarships. I think both those facts really were, were ones that drew me and said, yes, I'd be happy to, to consider being a governor. I was very, very honoured when I was uh, chosen as one. To bring back fond memories as you walk back into the yeah, school. Yeah, it's very surreal, actually, to be very honest. But, yeah, but it's, it's a nice, uh, nice uh, surreal experience at times as well. I always find the smells of schools when you go back. It does bring everything back, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know exactly. The, the whole piece, and I think just... Um, it almost felt, I forgot how big the school was. I was listening to someone else who was talking about going back to his primary school and, and thinking, oh, this is actually really small compared to my memory. I think Brent was the exact opposite. I think my, I, I, could, I couldn't believe how large the campus was and how much um, was going on. It was that sense of awe almost about the, the scale of it in many ways. Let's talk a little bit more about you. You started your career in the corporate world and then you went on to found two educational charities. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think I should really um, talk specifically about a teacher in Brentwood who uh, made a huge difference to my life at that time. And, you know, I'm, I'm the son of, um, of Indian doctors, as I mentioned. There was a lot of, I had an incredible childhood and I made so many sacrifices, including relocating in these very difficult times. But there was a really, really strong value in education that was put all the way through. But I wasn't really a... Um, Maths and science were, were more or less my Achilles heel. I got through them fine for GCSE and got good grades because I, I was really motivated to want to get to the next level. But I had a real passion for writing, actually, and something that stayed through my life. And uh, Paul Henderson, who was my English teacher at the time, I think just saw something in me that no one else saw and I think was able to unlock a huge amount in um, in terms of helping me see myself differently and see, see a potential I didn't really see, perhaps no one really saw. And, you know, as I mentioned, it was, it was quite a traumatic adjustment back to, to that. It was a different academic standard. So I think that confidence that someone really believed in me really, really was very pivotal, I think, as well. And um, I applied for a scholarship to a different school for sixth form for various reasons. And despite that, Paul Henderson still stayed in touch. I'm still, a, we're still friends now. And actually took me down to, to Cambridge, actually, one day. He was a Cambridge graduate himself. I was a bit nervous. I thought it wasn't really the kind of place for me. I wasn't sure I was good enough. But uh, memory pretty much um, forced me down the M11. I'm just joking there. But um, and really waited outside patiently uh, various admissions offices till till I, till I, till I, my, myself was really inspired to apply. I ended up reading economics rather English. Both were real strengths of mine. But I think despite that, he remained very, very open and, and very, very supportive. And I think I talked in, in my recent book about the idea of nurturers, or people who take us to places we wouldn't have got to otherwise really help us become the best versions of ourselves, not the versions they, they think we should be. They don't always have all the answers, but know how to write, ask the right questions at the right time. I thought he displayed all those characteristics of a nurture. And I think you know, Brentwood overall, but I think particularly him, made a huge difference to, to my life. And it's one I'm still incredibly grateful for. It is interesting, isn't it, how many people you speak to who have made a success across the board, not just in business, but, but but all sorts of successes. And they refer back to those days, those those incredible pivotal days when somebody spots something in you that you didn't know you had. No, exactly. I think it's something about our, our nature as, as humans. We, it's hard for us to have objective versions of, our, of ourselves. There's a, a famous one, a famous but a Korean saying that says, a, you know, a, a good barber should never cut their own hair. And I think this is kind of a variation of that, that, you know, that it's very hard for us to be objective and to see our own strengths and potential. We tend to be 
very heavily dominated by the, the chatter in our mind. I think sometimes what nurturers do is they help us connect back to our authentic selves, to, our, to really where we want to go. And they sense with us where, you know, where we want to really make a difference in the world. And they help us reconnect and almost hold us to account for that as well. And I think that Cambridge story, I, you know, I, I just thought I wasn't ready, wasn't good enough, etc. I think it's not that sense that, no, I, I do think you, you've got a really good chance here. You are good enough. Give it a real shot. If it works, great. If it doesn't, that's fine too. But don't, 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 don't live life with regret, wondering what you could have done. So that really played mm-hmm. out in my life very strongly. So to your charities, what kind of charities are they? Yeah, so I, again, because of that, that passion for education, uh, Tracy, I, I, left, I left Cambridge and went into conventional roles in, in consulting, um, worked for companies like eBay, did an MBA at INSEAD and, and so on, but very, very passionate about education. And I really wanted to make a difference. I felt um, I'd spent many summers in India as a child while I was in Saudi Arabia particularly. And that, that time really had a very formative impact on me in terms of seeing many kids. Um, India was a, you know, a, a fairly poor country then, to be honest. And it was before the 90s. Uh, liberalization, you know, the economy hadn't become as strong. It's, it wasn't the superpower that we sort of see it now as. And just seeing kids my age who were as smart as me, as capable, have as much, if not more, potential, but we're just not able to realize that because of the ovarian lottery that we, we live in. And I think that, that sense stayed with me a, a long time and probably inspired by guilt, to be honest. I remember writing you know, some, some of my stories, short stories of Brentwood around some of these themes. I remember Paul Henderson talking about that. But that desire to make a difference. And so I spent five years founding a charity called Teaching Leaders. It's now called Ambition Institute. And the whole idea was that in many parts of the country, the most disadvantaged uh, parts, particularly in in coastal areas, inner cities, etc., there's huge variation in outcomes within a school, actually far more than between schools. And what that was really down to is the fact that there wasn't really a culture of leadership in many schools. And... Often teaching was very collegiate. Um, there was a sense you couldn't really, not criticize, but you couldn't, you couldn't do anything to really create more of a force of, of, of improvement and drive a strong culture through a school. And a lot was really at the middle of a school. So the heads of a year, heads of, heads of department, they're so important, as, as Brentwood knows. So I created a program that really helped nurture that leadership potential for, for leaders in, in challenging inner city schools. You know, very proud we set it up with the, the help of ARC, a, a major academy trust now, but it was funded by the Department of Education, and then it actually went to pretty much every school in the country that was eligible uh, with government funding. And then I worked with the Obama administration. He had just got elected. His team were looking for new innovations. We helped persuade them and, and the Gates Foundation to take it to eight cities in the, in the state. So that was a really exciting ride, my first ride in education. Uh, I didn't know much about it beyond uh, uh, having gone to school. I wasn't an educationalist or a teacher, but learned, learned fast, and it was really nice to apply some of those ideas to it. And the last 10 years, and I just finished this chapter about a year and a half ago, but spent 10 years founding a charity called Stir Education, which was all about reigniting the motivation of teachers in, in emerging countries, particularly in India, Indonesia, East Africa, those kinds of regions of the world. And the challenge was that you know, governments had spent a lot of money building access to education, and incredible achievements, actually. So India built a million free-to-access government schools across the country. 240 million children, about four times the size of the UK, were in this school system in India alone. And yet this was largely not realizing its potential because um, teachers had lost their sense of calling. And what I spent 10 years trying to figure out is how to to rekindle that, how to reignite that motivation without without using money because teachers were actually quite well paid. Unions are quite strong. Um, Money was an issue. They were were actually very well paid compared to local incomes. And so how do you try and bring these ideas back of purpose, that sense of 
how as teachers they help and serve others, autonomy, them feeling like they're in control of their lives, and, and mastery, feeling better and better as professionals every day. We tried to bring that, the initiative eventually reached about 35,000 schools, about 7 million children, by helping governments with a new way of thinking about motivation, training them to run this approach in, in all those schools as well. It was an incredible um, experience. Why did they lose their motivation then? What had caused that? Because I would imagine in, in, a, in a country that was in, coming into development, you'd understand how important education was. So why had that been lost? I think it's a, it's a, it's a common uh, challenge, Tracy, across many organisations. And I, I now work, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, in an organisation called Intrinsic Labs. And I help organisations from L'Oreal and Shopify all the way to the government of Kenya to you know, charities like Teach for All um, address some of these questions around motivation, potential direction. But... The core is that what happens when we're in an organization is we often forget the why of what we're doing. It can feel like, you know, there's a, there has to be some level of compliance in an organization, there has to be some level of bureaucracy, and that can sort of stifle that sense of purpose. So, you know, of course, teaching is intrinsically purposeful. It's about helping and serving young people and, and helping a new generation of minds um, come into the world and, and people, of course. But even in this country, you know, when I, when I wrote my book, I, I talked to a lot of head teachers and Many of them said to me things like, you know, I no longer think what's, um, what, what's right for my community or for my learners. I think, what would Ofsted say? Or mm-hmm. how would this look on my league table uh, where I am in my local area? And so, you know, even in the UK, I think this is a phenomenon in, in almost every sector. We've tended to create organizations that, tra- tend, that tend to build extrinsic, in my language, or external pressure on us to perform. And it's a bit like, you know, I just got an electric car recently, and it's a bit like driving a a diesel car, my old car versus an electric car, you get from A to B with a diesel, but you're often choking with the fumes along the way. And that's a bit like extrinsic or external motivation. You're doing it because something else is promised at the end. And there's about 30 years now of very rigorous research that shows that if we can live intrinsically, if we can try and do something because we really enjoy it, we believe in it, we get a deep sense of satisfaction from it, we're going to be happier, more fulfilled and more successful over the long term. And so, yeah, in that sense, I think teachers around the world, um, the US, for example, has just lost 1.6 million teachers of the pandemic. They've resigned, they've left the profession. We've got a real crisis of motivation in many frontline uh, roles in, in, you know, in, in many sectors. I think we need to go back to these concepts of intrinsic motivation and think about our organisations differently. Fascinating. I was going to ask you more about that. We've, we've started to, to touch on it. So, so how did you discover that, that we need this intrinsic motivation? Well, presumably it was the work with the teachers and, and then you developed it, developed it from yeah, there. Yeah, definitely, Tracy. And I think actually what was really interesting was my own personal journey. I always think, you know, I, I wrote a book because I wanted a way to distill what I'd learned over those 10 years and also go on a quest to learn more and see how I could apply these ideas to all of the key areas of our lives. So the the book Intrinsic talks about you know our motivation at work, but our careers, but also in our relationships with our significant other, with our as parents if we have if we have children or want to have children, and finally um, of course as citizens in the world and the countries we live in, what does it mean to be motivated? How can we try to find a, a new way of, of feeling um, excited and ignited in all of these really key domains of our lives? And so for me, I think. Um, the book was a way to distill it and learn and, and channel that and think about what, what it meant. But also it made me question my own life. I think as a son of immigrants, and I, I gave a talk to the sixth form of Brentwood a couple of years ago, and I think this resonated quite strongly, but many, many kids um, are under significant pressure these days to, to succeed and perform. It seems like we live in a winner-takes-all world where 
the fruits of any you know industry or sector or profession tend to accrue to a few and not the many. And what that can lead us to, and I, I would really say this is so important to try to counteract, is that sense that Brentwood is here to get us a good grade or good A-levels, which will get us into, or IB or, or a BTEC, that will get us into a good university or apprenticeship or whatever the next destination, that will then get us to a, a good job. And that ladder of success, that sort of straight line view, that linear path was my mental model of how the world worked. Mm-hmm. And what I've come to realize, and I went to some of the best universities, I went to Cambridge, I went to Oxford, I went to INSEAD, um, a lot of the people I went to, to university uh, with are not always happy many years out. They're not, they're, they're usually successful conventionally, but they're not always doing the things they want to really do. And there's often a huge sense of loss, especially you enter sort of midlife around almost a sense of deep regret, despite having gone down to these amazing places and had these incredible opportunities. And so I think that these years at Brentwood are such important ones to really be self-aware, to figure out what really drives us, who are we, where do we really want to go, and set our journey in a way that was very authentic to us. There are, you know, there's the reality we all, you know, we do need to get good grades most of the time. We need to tick certain boxes for sure, but I think a, a really... Brentwood education is so much more than that. But I think there's been that pressure to reduce education down to that, you know, almost that it's it's a gate to get to the next level. And I think what I've certainly found about my life and the work I do practically with organizations, what's so important, what's most important is that lifelong love of learning, that deep curiosity to keep learning, keep going deeper, almost like a scientist, learn more and more about an area or, or new areas you're interested in, and also just apply hard work and, and be willing to really go the extra mile, push yourself. And by doing that, you really get into that state of flow. You, you really get lost in that um, in the area you're working in. And you'll be successful without it feeling like hard work in many ways. That's the irony. So it's almost that taking that broader view can help us so much um, in terms of preparing us for the world outside. I think during the pandemic too, that's it's forced. It's almost like your time has come because it's forced an awful lot of people when they had the time to reevaluate where they were in life. You obviously did quite a lot in the pandemic because you wrote your book, didn't you? Yes, the book was was started before the pandemic, but I think obviously I, I was about halfway through when it all came, and I think it, it also added a huge amount of urgency and made many of the ideas I was writing about very central. And for me personally, I think it was a chance to, um, to slow down a bit. To, I'd, I'd been living on a plane when I was running Stir Education. I was um, in India and Africa, Indonesia a lot. I was raising money often in America because the large um, foundations and, and, and companies are there. So a chance to connect much more with my, my children, my wife. That was really, really important. And also just to figure out for myself what I wanted to do in the next chapter. I was um, had run Stir, had reached about 35,000 schools, as I mentioned, the temptation, again, is just to do more of the same, either keep running that or go and find another charity. But I think writing the book made me think a lot about the world we live in and that kind of winner-takes-all challenge I mentioned. And I felt this chapter had to be one about me helping other leaders become great nurturers themselves. Could I nurture them to, they, to achieve their potential? I, I met so many amazing leaders all, all over the world, from you know prime ministers to education ministers to corporate executives. There was a deep desire by many of them to make a make it a real difference, leave a real legacy. But they were on this treadmill where life was moving so fast, they couldn't step back. And they couldn't really align their direction to where they, what really gave them meaning and purpose. And I thought this chapter has got to be all about that. And that that really inspired the book. And what it's led to, and what I really love, is working with a whole range of organizations across sectors, helping them respond to the challenges by coaching, by advising. But also increasingly, I'm trying to 
bring those leaders together so they can learn from each other and, and, and find different perspectives. Even though the sectors are so different from universities to, to large corporates, many of the, the core issues around leadership are actually very analogous and building new bridges and new worlds can be, can be very helpful sometimes. Mm. I suppose even if you have motivation, the, the structures almost, almost all structures, political, educational structures work against that, don't they? Because often people with the greatest possible uh, good intentions come into political leadership and those are sort of almost eroded by the structure that's with them. How, how do you change that? Because you might be able to change the people, but it's changing those structures, yeah, isn't and it? I actually talked, Tracy, to um, a number of politicians when writing the book. I, I spent quite a lot of time in the Commons, the Lords and other governments around the world as well when researching it. And the level of demotivation in our own government, I mean, maybe it's not a surprise, is, is pretty high right now. There's a real sense that many political leaders, active leaders, feel that they're not able to represent the country genuinely. They've had to tribalize and become part of factions. They don't have a lot of autonomy. Many, even ministers were talking, we have 100 ministers in the UK right now, for example, would tell me they watched um, you know announcements on the TV uh, before, before you know, they, they, they heard about it. So it can feel very disempowering. And I think the more, more broadly as any kind of leader, whatever sector we're in, it's about really going back to the core of leadership. That's why I'm such a big fan of what Brentwood is, is because both Michaels, Michael Bond and Michael Snyder as well, they're such great leaders in, in their executive and non-executive roles as well. It's a time for leaders to come out and say, we really believe in, in a certain direction. This is where we want to go. And not having to apologize for that, but actually bring other people along with them and nurture that, that motivation, build that motivating culture in their organizations that will help them go along the journey with them. I think that we've overused accountability, we've overused instruction, we've overused all of these kind of old management tools. I think we need a different way, which is really much more building a, a real bridge with the people we work with and coming on that journey together. Yes, and I suppose being part of the education will hopefully imbue the, the, the young people coming up to have that that kind of motivational, even before they get into the sort of roles that they're going to be holding later on in life. Yeah, it's really important, isn't it? Yeah, no, exactly, Tracy. So you were awarded the OBE in the Queen's Honours List in uh, 2022. How did that feel? Services to education, obviously. How did it feel? Uh, no, it was amazing, Tracy. I think for me, you know, coming in from uh, as an immigrant to the, this country and very, very grateful for what the country has done for me. That sense of, you know, you're, you're starting new. I think my, my parents took a huge risk to leave a very... Um, comfortable middle-class life and education in India, like, like many other people like them from all around the world. And I think UK has been a great place and it has, has been a very, yeah, a place that's really allowed us to have our talents flourish, certainly my generation as well. They had many um, obstacles, many barriers around them. And so I think that sense of, you know, within a generation to see that it is possible to change things and obviously Brentwood played a big role in that. But that was, to me, that was the most exciting part of it. That was one part. The other side that was really powerful, I think these last 10 years, the years running Stir, which is what the OB was really for, I got a chance to reconnect with India and what was happening there. And that was just an incredible personal experience, one that I'll never forget because I was born there. I felt a deep sense of responsibility, I guess, for where the country was going, given its size and scale in the world. And making even a small, small dent on what happened in education in the country, that was something I'm yeah, very, very proud of. So it felt, yeah, a really nice way to... To, to almost put put a put a bow around those ten years, they've been quite difficult, quite challenging. I sacrificed a lot of my time with family and, and my my kids, especially. Yeah, that sense of sort of it, it was almost a, a watershed moment in a way. And hopefully that bow helps you into the future because there's no two ways about it. Being honoured and recognised, hopefully, will will help to have the actual work you do recognised as well. No, definitely. And I think you know, I I work with a lot of people trying to change careers, and it's tough. I, being very honest, there are good days and bad days because you're trying to 
bring the best of what you've already learned and taken, but you're trying to learn something new. And things, the currency that can, trends to that you can take with you between those worlds can, can, can be incredibly powerful. It's one that everyone sort of recognizes and understands. The other thing I'd say that's been really helpful in my own career change has been the value of just friends who've believed in me, who've known me from my past life and know that you know, I'm committed, I really do what I promise to do, I do it well, I want to do it with genuine sincerity and motivation. They tend to open doors for us quite powerfully. They tend to champion us as we make those directions as well. They also open up new areas of expertise. They help us see the world differently. They play that nurturing role very powerfully. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about how do we career change? And this is my fifth career after Cambridge, and maybe it's one of my last one. But how do we try to really help um, ourselves do that? And those transferable skills around curiosity, willing to learn, willing to take risks, I think Brentwood is such a great place to, to build the foundation of the transferable skills early in our lives. So when we do need to career change, most of us will need to in the world we live in. That feels a bit more seamless and a bit more part of how we've lived our lives each day. You look far too young to make this your last career. There must be something in the future that you're hankering after, thinking, I can change this, I can do this. I think one of the really exciting things, I loved running an organisation, Tracy. I love the sense of, 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 you know, I had a wonderful team, about 150 people at one point, working in, you know, a very large scale, of course. But what I'm loving now about my work is, is the chance to work with so many other leaders who, who are between them, you know, responsible for millions of people. And I know that even a small difference working with them and helping them see something differently helping them achieve their potential, it will have a huge impact on organizations that already are making a significant difference in the world. But I know those leaders also will go on and go on to lead other things as well. And so playing that kind of nurture role, uh, for me, has been the most motivating part of this chapter and helping them frame and take new thinking and new ideas, some for me, some for other people, but helping them apply that to their own, their own lives and their realities and helping them bring that into tangible action and seeing a real impact. That's been the really exciting part of this uh, this chapter. So I have no idea what's next, but I think for the next, uh, and I'm yeah, very happy for, for quite a while, I think, and really enjoying this uh, this chance to step back a bit and, and play more of a nurturing role to other leaders in, in, in this next uh, next quest. I'm fascinated because you have a very calm but, but authoritative way that I would have to believe what you said. I would have to actually engage with you. And do, do you think that that comes from your youth, if you like, that you face challenges and you you found a way of actually being able to motivate other people be, be, almost because you face those challenges? You, you've had to do that. Yeah, I think what the, the last 15 years have really given me, Tracy, is a deep empathy for how tough leadership is. I, I talked to Michael Bond about it and, you know, for everyone, it's not easy running a school, for example, as, you know, as complex as Brentwood is, 2,000 students or so, what very different year groups, different contexts, um, all of these kinds of, uh, or, or Jason and the prep school, for example, these are, leadership is never easy. And you never, it's, I've never, I don't think I ever have had a day as a leader where I go back and say, wow, I did everything brilliantly. And looking back over, say, 10 years at Stur, there's so many things I could have done better, more uh, smartly. I, I, I put all the work I could have put in, that, that I don't regret. But I think in terms of, you know, with that benefit of hindsight, there's so much more we can do. It's always that that journey of mastery, of getting better and better each day, it's it's such a tough journey. I think having gone through it and sat in those shoes, that empathy of knowing what it feels like to have a difficult discussion with a, a stakeholder, for example, or dealing with a parent or a teacher, whatever it might be, I think there's, there's a lot of ground that can be covered through that 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 connect, I think, and having gone through the experience myself. So I do, my, my reality is different for everyone else's. Everyone's is unique. But knowing some of the patterns and knowing not the answer, but how to create a guided journey where we can ask the right questions at the right time, 
know, at that point, what are the questions we should be thinking about? How do we think about this problem? And then playing that little bit of a encouraging but critical friend, a bit like Paul Henderson, the teacher I mentioned at Brentwood, knowing when something doesn't sound quite right and saying, do you really mean that? Is that really what you mean? Would that really get to you to where you want to go? But when it is really energizing and they are going in that direction, okay, how do we add fuel to the fire? How do we, who could help you further? What connections can we make? Who could you be talking to? What could you be harnessing? That balancing act is one I really, really enjoy in this phase of life. Hugely valuable, hugely valuable advice there. It's been wonderful talking to you today and uh, I'm going to whip out and buy your book immediately, find out more about it. But thank you very much and good luck with whatever the future holds. I- I'm sure it'll be something very exciting. No, thanks, Tracy. And, um, you know, I'm around the school a lot and I'm looking forward to speech day in, in, in a short while as well. Um, if other people are interested, I also write a lot about these topics on LinkedIn. Just follow me on there as well um, or, or Twitter. But yeah, no, I'm very, very passionate about this area. And I think, you know, as a governor, my, my, my role really first was to support the governing board and the school, of course, more broadly. But if there's something I can do individually. It's that sense of helping, you know, I'd love to see if we can become an even more powerful place to really help students find themselves in these amazing years and set their, their long-term direction and motivation up while they're in this amazing school. They're very lucky to have you as a governor. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Tracy. That's it for this episode and thank you for listening. To find out more, check out the school website, brentwoodschool.co.uk. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. So in the meantime, don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.